بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا فعلمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما يا كريم My dear brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh I welcome you all to, I guess, the third year uh, of knowledge in this musalla Alhamdulillah, in year one we covered Juz Amma, in year two we finished Imam Al-Nawi's 40 hadith And in year three I'm planning on finishing two texts, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala uh, the first text is the Ha'iyah of Ibn Abi Dawud, inshallah, which we will be starting tonight. And the second text I haven't finalized yet, but it will probably be a text in Usul al-Fiqh. And the goal is that over a period of like four or five years, we would have covered a text in every major Islamic science, so that you know, everyone can have a, a good, solid foundation in their deen. Now, choosing the science of Aqidah, a lot of people may think, you know what, why are we studying Aqidah? It's usually a controversial subject, it divides the Ummah, why are we discussing it? Other people may feel Aqidah is very dry, you know what, I don't feel any spirituality in it, so you know, maybe I shouldn't learn it. What we fail to realize, my dear brothers and sisters, is that Aqidah is the fine line between Jannah and Jahannam. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Ma'idah, He tells us, وَمَنْ يُشْرِكْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدْ حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ الْجَنَّةِ وَمَأْوَاهُ النَّارِ that whoever associates partners with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then he has made forbidden for him paradise and will enter him into the hellfire, will enter him into the hellfire. And that is why the science of Aqidah is very, very important to study. Now that's from, you know, the, the scary side. If I don't have correct Aqidah, you know, I might end up in the, into the hellfire. Now on the nobler side of it or the, the brighter side of it is that the science of Aqidah is the most beautiful subject because it is the subject that teaches, teaches us about the most beautiful creator, subhanahu wa ta'ala. It tells us about who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. It tells us about our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, my goal and objective in this text um, is twofold. One is to see how the Salaf understood Aqidah. Meaning that if you look at the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, how did they go to the type, how did they come from the type of people that they were? and become the great individuals that they became at the end. It was through Aqidah. And obviously their understanding of Aqidah was, is very, very different from ours. Because for, for us, when we talk about Aqidah, it's very theoretical, you know, very argumentative, always debating, and very you know, little transformation or spirituality. So I want to try to bring that into our understanding of Aqidah and see how they understood the science of Aqidah. Number two is I want to actually look at how did the Salaf, how did our predecessors actually understand Aqidah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He gives a clear commandment in the Qur'an, فَإِنْ آمَنُوا بِمِثْلِ مَا آمَنْتُمْ فَقَدْ اِحْتَدَوْا That if the people were to believe, just like the Sahaba radiallahu anhum were to believe, then they would truly be guided. So if we want to understand guidance, we want to look at guidance, then we find it in the beliefs of the Sahaba. And that's the, the second thing we will be looking at or trying to extrapolate. That what was the understanding of the Sahaba, what was the understanding of the Salaf when it came to Aqidah. And the text that I chose to do this through, it is called the Ha'iyah of Ibn Abi Dawud. Ha'iyah of Ibn Abi Dawud. Ha'iyah, it just basically indicates that every verse will end with the letter Ha. Every verse will end with the letter Ha. 
Now, uh, I had a limited number of copies with me that I brought with me. I gave them out to uh, the, the, the brothers that are regular. If you'd like a copy and you are going to be consistent, that is the thing. You have the intention to be consistent for a period of 10 halaqas, then inshallah I can give you a, a copy of the text as well. What you need to know about this text, this text is 33 verses, it's 33 lines, and inshallah we will be dividing that in about 9 halaqas, 9 to 10 halaqas inshallah ta'ala. So let us begin. Let us first begin a little uh, bit about the author. The author's name was Abu Bakr Abdullah ibn Sulaiman ibn Ash'ath al-Sijistani. And we'll go through it. So his kunya was Abu Bakr. This is like the, you know, his, his title that he was given. And his real name was Abdullah. And he was the son of the great Imam Sulaiman ibn Ash'ath. Who was Sulaiman ibn Ash'ath known as? Who knows? Who was Sulaiman ibn Ash'ath known as? Abu Dawud, very good. Alhamdulillah, very easy. You know, it's called the poem of the son of Abu Dawud, right? So Abu Dawud was Sulaiman ibn Ashath. So when we talk about the books of Sunnah, we often talk about the six famous books. One of them being the Sunan of Abu Dawud. So this was his son. This was his son. And his name was Abdullah. He was born in the year 230. He was born in the year 230. Now, what needs to be known about him is that he accompanied his father in a lot of the journeys that he took for seeking knowledge. So wherever his father went, his son Abdullah would go as well. And this is such a valuable lesson for us, you know, when, when we become parents or when we are parents, that the religious activity that we're engaged in, we, tried to, we want to try to engage our children in it as well. You know, bringing them to the masjid, the Quran halakas that we go to, tafsir halakas that we go to, any other form of religious education we bring or have, we want to try to bring our children to it as well. Why? Because we just plant the seeds and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides the people, you know, the way that He wants. And we see this with, you know, Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah. Imam al-Bukhari's dad was a muhaddith, he was a great scholar of hadith, but we don't know him like we know Imam al-Bukhari. And that initial influence came from the father. Same thing over here, the initial influence on Abdullah came from his father. Now Imam al-Dhahabi rahimahullah, when he comments on Abdullah, he actually says some of the scholars said that Abdullah was greater in virtue than his father was, in terms of virtue of knowledge, that he had better knowledge of fiqh, better knowledge of hadith than his father did. Now that is, you know, uh, a bit contentious that can be debated, but it shows you that the level that he had reached and how did it start? Just by taking his son to the various trips of knowledge. Now, um, Abdullah, his focus on this poem was to collect the understanding of himself, his teachers, and his father of Aqidah. And he has a, a statement where he says, هذا قولي وقول أبي وقول شيوخنا وقول العلماء ممن لم نراهم كما بلغنا عنهم فمن قال علي غير ذلك فقد كذب. So he says over here that you know when people to understand the context of the scenario, during the time of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, and this is roughly around the same time, the Mu'tazila had come into power. And they were testing the scholars with various aspects of Aqidah. So people would always be tested, you know, what do you say about the Qur'an? Is it the speech of Allah or is it created, right? So over here, one of his objectives behind authoring this poem is to indicate and clarify what his Aqidah actually was. So he says over here clearly that this is my Aqidah, the Aqidah of my father, the Aqidah of my teachers, and the Aqidah of the great you know, scholars of Ahlul Sunnah, even though I, we may not have seen them, but what we heard about them. So he makes it very, very clear that this was the Aqidah of the Salaf. 
Now, he passed away, rahimahullah, in the year 316. He passed away in the year 316. So he lived a, a pretty long life. And he's written quite a few works, some of them in tafsir, but, and some of them in usul al-fiqh, some of them in hadith. But the one that he became really famous for was this poem called Al-Ha'iya. The poem Al-Ha'iya, it's had many uh, explanations written, and it's been you know, transmitted by many people as well. So um, Abu Bakr, uh, Abdullah ibn Sulaiman, he taught it to Al-Ajurri, he taught it to Ibn Batta, he taught it to Ibn Shaheen. And the most you know, famous version of this is what Imam al-Dhahabi narrates from them. What Imam al-Dhahabi narrates in Sirah al-Amudubala from them. The most famous explanation of this was written by Imam al-Safarini. Imam al-Safarini wrote a two-volume fat book you know, uh, t uh, explaining this, this poem. Literally, it's, it's amazing. Like 33 lines, how do you explain it in like two fat volumes, subhanAllah. But mashallah, tabarakallah, he was able to pull it off. He was able to pull it off. Now I want to give a disclaimer here. And that disclaimer is, it has two parts to it. And pay very, very special attention to this, please. Number one is that this is going to be an advanced Aqidah class. The focus of this class is to, is to study advanced Aqidah. When we did Tafsir, when we did Hadith, it was generally open for the layman and, and open to everyone. And there wasn't too much confusion that could take place. With this class, if you're not you know, studying the text and revising your notes and paying attention to what's going on and being consistent in classes, you will get lost. You will not understand what is happening and what is going on. So understand that this is an advanced class and you will need to be a student of knowledge to continue this class. If you're not willing to be a student of knowledge, you know, you might be better home, you know, watching a YouTube clip or, or something else. And that's not to be mean, that's just the, the reality of the situation. Number two, is that the second disclaimer is about the mentioning of, uh, of different sects. So as you study Aqidah, we have what is Ahlul Sunnah, and then we have all of the groups that broke off. And part of our study is going to be looking at what is the Aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah, and what is the Aqidah of the other groups. Now when studying the Aqidah of other groups, what is important to understand over here is that just because someone may have a different theology, a different type of theology, a different sect of Islam, the way we interact with them and the way we treat them is based upon, you know, masalih and mafazid. It is based upon, you know, pros and cons. You'll notice that at the time of the Salaf, Imam Ahmad, Imam al-Bukhari and other than them, it was very easy to abandon someone who had a deviant aqidah in hopes that that abandoning them, then they would come back to the truth. Right? In our day and age, things like this don't really apply. You abandon someone because he has a mistake in his aqidah or he has a shortcoming in his faith, and then you're leaving him to the traps of shaitan. You're leaving him to fall into further disbelief and into further problems. So it's very important to understand that, that you know what, you might find another speaker that made a, a statement of a sect that we're talking about. Right? It doesn't mean that you label that speaker and you know, you know, ostracize him from, from speaking and tell people, you know what, don't listen to this speaker. But rather, with maturity, you'll come to understand that this is not what you know, our predecessors taught us. With that having been said, we will start off, insha'Allah ta'ala, with the first two verses of the poem. <clears throat> Manib, you want to read for us, insha'Allah? Okay. Inshallah. Yeah. <laughs> Hold tightly the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the guidance and do not be an innovator so that you may be successful. Read the second one as well, inshaAllah. 
ودين بكتاب الله والسنن التي أتت عن رسول الله تنجو وتربحو and practice your religion based on the book of Allah and the sunnah which have come from the messenger of Allah so you will be saved and unreward fantastic so the first thing when you're reading a text and I, I've taught this to my students before from the etiquettes of reading a text is that you begin by making dua for the author and then for yourself as well so generally speaking we'll say qala al-mu'allifu rahimanallahu wa iyyah we will say the author said may Allah have mercy upon him and upon us but over here we're not reading just a text we're reading a poem so the correct etiquette would be to say qala nadhimu rahimanallahu wa iyyah that may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy upon the poet and upon us and this is an etiquette that you should keep up with all of the texts that you read. That any time you begin, whether reading a book in English, in Arabic, or any other language, always start off by making a dua for the author and for yourself. This is from the etiquettes that we are taught as a student of knowledge. Now, the first thing the author mentions is tamasak bihablillah wa al-huda. That hold on tightly to the rope of Allah and to guidance. Now, the very first thing we notice over here from... Uh, Abu Bakr Abdullah ibn Sulaiman is that he's establishing a very important principle and that is when talking about matters of Aqidah it's very important to use the language that the Quran and Sunnah use it's very important to use the language that the Quran and Sunnah use so you'll notice that a lot of the, the words that he is using, you're going to find them in the Qur'an. And for the most part, I'll be telling you what verses they are found in, so that you can keep track of them. So when he talks about tamassak, he is referring to the verse in Surah Al-A'raf, verse 170. Surah Al-A'raf, verse 170. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, those individuals that hold on, hold on to the book and establish the prayer, indeed we will not allow the reward of the righteous people to go to waste. So tamasik over here, it means to hold on to something tightly. Don't let go of it. And this is the example that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He gives us in the Quran, that hold on tightly to the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want you to think about when would an individual hold on to something tightly? You'd hold on to something tightly as if you're rock, you're mountain climbing. You're on the side of a mountain, you're trying to climb the mountain, and you need to get to the top. Now imagine what would happen if your hand were to slip, or if you couldn't have a proper grip at that time. You would fall to your destruction, right? And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about over here. That if you don't hold on to the Qur'an with the tightest possible grip, then you're going to fall to your destruction at that time. And subhanAllah, you know, even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has clearly told us this in the Qur'an, this point for me, it didn't really stick in my head until I met Nu'man Ali Khan. Uh, we were in a conference in London together, and a sister had come, and she's complaining about a whole bunch of problems that she's having, you know, in, in her faith, and, you know, problems with understanding ayat and hadith, and so on and so forth. And then he listens to her whole story, and he's like, okay, fantastic. Let me ask you one simple question. When was the last time you read the Qur'an? And it, was, it, it stuck at that time. You know, she's like, you know, I, I can't remember. And he's like, look, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He revealed the Qur'an as a guide. And as soon as you abandon the Qur'an, that is when your crisis in faith has begun. And it, it really you know, it shocked me at that time, subhanAllah, that a lot of the times, a lot of us will be in a crisis of faith, and we haven't even realized it. What is the sign of that crisis of faith? When we're not reading the Qur'an regularly. If you're not reading the Qur'an regularly, and this applies to myself first and foremostly, then we are having a crisis of faith. 
We don't realize it yet because we think, you know what, I'm not having a crisis of faith as long as I, I have a beard and, you know, I'm praying or I'm wearing hijab or, you know what, I have a Muslim name. I can't have a crisis of faith. But that crisis of faith will happen as soon as we abandon the Qur'an. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us. وَاَتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا This is in Surah Al-Imran verse 103. That hold on to the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all together. That this rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Qur'an. I mean, there is some dis discussion. What does the habal of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mean? The rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does it mean? But as Ibn Jarir and Ibn Kathir and the vast majority of the Mufassirun mention, the habal of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Qur'an. The habal of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Qur'an. al-huda And follow the guidance. And follow the guidance. Now, what is the difference between taqlid and ittiba'? Taqlid and ittiba'. Taqlid is when you follow something without actually comprehending why it's there. Without actually comprehending why it's there. Ittiba' is to follow something, but to understand the reasoning behind it. To understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Right? And we have been commanded to follow the prophets. al mursaleen Right? The, the, the command to follow the prophets. Mean that we follow the prophets, but we should all also understanding what they're doing. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, sorry, when the, the poet mentions over here, Al-Huda, the Huda that he's referring to is the guidance of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now who can give me an example from the Quran or from the Sunnah where the term Huda is used as the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? And I'm pretty sure all of you know the answer to this. Go ahead. Okay, now I need something more specific than that. Okay. Something more specific than that. Think Juma Khutbah. What does the Khatib say? Okay, don't give me the whole thing. I'm talking about part of what that. No, after that. No, <laughs> jump after. Amma Ba'd. Ahsan, there we go. The, the, the words of the Prophet himself. Huda Muhammad. You know, the best guidance is the guidance of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the term guidance over here is referring to the guidance of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So hold tightly to the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Quran, and then hold on to the sunnah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now I want someone to tell me why these two in particular. Why did the author begin with the Quran and sunnah over here? Go ahead. This is like the basis of our religion. Everything is based upon the Quran and Sunnah. Fantastic. It is the, the, what we call epistemology, right? How do we know the things that we know? Our religion has six sources of epistemology. It has six sources of epistemology. The first of them is the Quran. The second of them is the Sunnah. The third of them is Ijma'. The fourth of them is the intellect. The fifth of them is the fitrah. And the sixth of them is the senses. The sixth of them is the senses. So here he's saying that the most important sources of knowledge that anyone can have is the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Is the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Now we're going to be going into further principles later on pertaining to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. But it's very important to understand that when studying the science of Aqidah, there's no room for he said, she said. There's no room for my shaykh said. There's no room for, oh, I had a dream. This is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, said or, or looks like, right? It's all about what Allah stated and what the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said and did. What al-huda? And follow guidance. 
So here the author is saying that once you've held on to the rope of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you need to follow guidance. And this is, he's giving us an understanding of the role of the sunnah. The role of the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is that it came to clarify and explain what the Qur'an actually says. And this is why the Qur'an and the sunnah can actually not be divided, right? The Qur'an is dependent upon the sunnah. Because there are certain things in the Qur'an that cannot be understood without the sunnah. And the sunnah came to clarify the Qur'an. The sunnah came to clarify the Qur'an. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He told um, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Surah Al-Nahl. How does the verse start? What, it's either, does anyone know Surah Al-Nahl here? No? No Surah Al-Nahl? Where is he? Where, Ayub's on his way to Medina. May Allah make it easy for him. I mean, But to, to summarize the verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says in, in the translation of it, that we have revealed to you revelation so that you may make clear, sorry, we have revealed to you unto you a dhikr so that you may make clear to mankind which was revealed to them. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Nahl, He's saying we revealed to you a dhikr, meaning the sunnah, so that you may make clear to them what the Qur'an says. You may make clear to them what the Qur'an says. And that is the relationship between the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Then he goes on to say, وَلَا تَكُوا And do not be an innovator so that you might be successful. Do not be an innovator so that you might be successful. Now here we are going to introduce the concept of Ahlul Sunnah. This is a term that we all have heard, a Sunni Muslim versus a non-Sunni Muslim, right? It comes from Ahlul Sunnah. Where did this term Ahlul Sunnah come from? And I'm not asking a question as in I need an answer. I'm asking you a question so that you may think about it. The term Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, it actually comes from the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, right? So in hadith number 28 of Imam Al-Nawis, 40 hadith, he says, فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي So it is upon you to follow my Sunnah. Right? And in another hadith, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he says that the previous nations, they split into 71 sects and 72 sects, and my Ummah will split into 73 sects. All of them will be in the hellfire except for one of them. They asked, Ya Rasulullah, who is this one group that will be saved? And in different narrations, he went on to say, it is what I am upon and my companions are upon, it is the Jama'ah. Right? And in another hadith he says, Yadullahi ala al-jama'ah, that the hand of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is on the jama'ah. Right? So that is where the term Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah originates from. Who was the first one to actually use the term Ahlul Sunnah? Who was the first one to actually use the term Ahlul Sunnah? It's differed amongst the scholars. They said either Ibn Abbas or Muhammad ibn Sirin. Either Ibn Abbas or Ibn Sirin. If you were to look in Surah Al Imran, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala if I'm not mistaken, it's verse uh, 105 and 106, where he says, Yawma that on that day when faces will be whitened, Ibn Abbas, he said that these are the faces of Ahlul Sunnah. These are the faces of Ahlul Sunnah. Now, this tafsir, it was reported by Imam Al Lalikai and by Ibn Jarir. It was reported by Imam Al Lalikai and Ibn Jarir and Imam Al Sayyuti, sorry. These three reported this tafsir from Ibn Abbas. The issue with this is the chain of narration is weak. So this chain of narration to Ibn Abbas, it has people that are rejected, people that you know, were known to lie, and that's why this narration is not acceptable. Then we move on to the narration of Muhammad ibn Sirin. The narration of Muhammad ibn Sirin is in the introduction to Sahih Muslim. It is the introduction to Sahih Muslim. And in this, Imam Muslim rahimahullah, he mentions from Muhammad ibn Sirin that when the fitna came, we would look to the narrators. And those that were from Ahlul Sunnah, we would accept 
and those that were not, we would reject. So meaning Ahl-Sunnah over here, these are the people that had the correct aqidah, they had correct guidance, we would accept from them. But if they weren't from those people, then we would reject their statements. And this is what I was sort of referring to, that you know in the past, when you lived in an Islamic state, you were in an Islamic environment, you had the luxury of ostracizing people for deviant beliefs and statements. But when you live as a, a Muslim minority in the land of disbelievers, this concept of ostracizing and abandonment, it doesn't work, right? And has a, a counter effect, it is counterproductive to what you're actually trying to achieve. So when you understand such statements of Muhammad ibn Salim, you know, we used to reject the statements of Ahlul Bid'ah, it doesn't necessarily apply in our times. It needs to be understood in its proper context. Now we get into the interesting discussion of how do we decide who is a Sunni and who is not? And I want to hear your thoughts on this. How do we decide who is a Sunni Muslim and who is not a Sunni Muslim? Anyone have an idea? Go ahead. Uh, I've heard that uh, one of the scholars mentioned uh, the definition of Sunni Muslim. Yes. Somebody who is not a Shia. <laughs> <laughs> so you told us what he's not, but you didn't tell me what he is. Okay, so I need to know what is he though. Go ahead, Mahtab. Fantastic. So you've given us a very general guideline that he follows the Quran and the Sunnah and he stays away from innovation. Now that third thing is what's saving you because it's so general it encompasses everything I wanted to say. So generally holding on to the Quran and the Sunnah upon the understanding of the pious predecessors while staying away from innovation. That in general summary is who Ahl Sunnah or what a Sunni Muslim actually is. But how do we actually define that in terms of principles? How do we actually define that in terms of principles. Now these principles are going to be like the defining point of this class. If you leave understanding these principles, you've understood pretty much the whole text because everything else will be an understanding of these principles. So it's very, very important to understand what these principles are stating and why we're actually stating them. So principle number one, and this is why Encouraged to take notes. You need to take notes in this class, inshallah. You have pen and paper, take it out. You have a phone, take it out. You have a tablet, take it out. Take notes with something, inshallah. Number one, to believe in all of the texts. To believe in all of the texts. Okay? So this concept of believing all of the texts, it encompasses several factors. Number one, it encompasses believing in the sunnah. So you'll find certain groups that affiliate with Islam, they believe in the Qur'an, but they end up rejecting the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Number two, are those individuals that reject certain aspects of the sunnah based upon their intelligence. They reject certain aspects of the sunnah based upon their intelligence. So someone says the hadith of the fly, you know what, that doesn't make sense to me, why should I dip it in my drink? Or the hadith of the sun making sajda to, the, to, the, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The sun doesn't make sajda. You know, this hadith must be weak and fabricated, right? So rejecting the sunnah based upon intellect. Number three, rejecting the sunnah based upon rejecting the, the, the carriers of the sunnah. So an individual says, you know what? All of the sahaba, they were disbelievers with the exception of like a hand few. So they'll reject the sunnah altogether. Right? So this is how individuals will end up rejecting the sunnah. So part of Sunni belief is that if it is a established text, the Quran obviously there's no doubt about, but from the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, as long as, you know, as soon as we establish its authenticity, then it is compulsory to believe in it. It is compulsory to believe in it. So Ahl sunnah believe in all of the texts. Ahl sunnah believe in all of the texts. Number two, 
the second principle. Anything that we need to know about Aqidah is found in the Quran and the Sunnah. Anything that we need to know about Aqidah is found in the Quran and the Sunnah. Why does this become relevant? This becomes relevant because you will find certain groups that will say, you know what, my Shaykh says that this is what the, the, we should believe, right? My Shaykh says that this is what we should believe. And where did the Shaykh get it from? He had a dream. And subhanAllah, you may think that I'm making this up, but there's this one individual, you know, he's alive in our times right now, and he's like, I've been studying fiqh with Imam Abu Hanifa in my dreams, rahimahullah. And you know, I can narrate, I'm considered, he didn't say this, but indirectly he's saying, I'm a sahabi, because I can narrate hadith from the Prophet wasallam. And this, these sort of crazy things, you'll actually find them in our times, right? So when it comes to deriving aqidah, we don't look at people's dreams, we don't look at, you know, what people say. Anything and everything we need to look at is found in the Qur'an and Sunnah. Now, why in particular are we mentioning this principle? That's just like, you know, the, 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 the funny commentary. The serious reason why we're mentioning this over here, during the time of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, Greek philosophy started to creep in to the Muslim nations. Greek philosophy started to creep in. And that's what really influenced the, the Mu'tazila group. And after them came the Ash'ara and the Matrudiya. Now the Ash'ara and the Matrudiya, while the Mu'tazila were complete rationalists, the Ash'ara and the Matrudiya were semi-rationalists. They were like the middle ground between Ahlul Sunnah and the Mu'tazila group. Now, as you'll come to see, they, the Ash'ara and the Matrudiya, they had some mistakes in their Aqidah. Now, why did they end up having those mistakes? Because they used Greek philosophy to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So if you want to understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you're not going to look into Greek philosophy and talk about accidents and talk about bodies and talk like accidents and bodies are actually philosophical terms. I'm not talking about you know, two cars coming together. That's not it. But they're, they're philosophical terms that you know, an accident cannot exist by itself. And by accident, they mean an attribute. So for example, can a color exist by itself? Can a color exist by itself? No, a color needs to be either of a book or an apple of something else. So they said this is what you call an accident. And an accident can only be encompassed by a body. Now accidents to them wasn't just colors, it was any form of movement, any form of displacement, that was considered an accident. An accident can only, be, it can only exist on a body. And a body by definition needs to be created, right? So if there is an accident, then it has to be on the body, and if there's a body, then that body must be created. And this led to them saying that we need to reject the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to necessitate that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala isn't created. So it's like this far-fetched you know, philosophy to reach something very, very simple, right? So that is what ended up happening. So when we talk about aqidah, again, Greek philosophy out the window. So that is what the second principle is referring to. Principle number three. There is no abrogation when it comes to Aqidah. There is no abrogation when it comes to Aqidah. So when it comes to belief systems, the belief system that we have as Muslims is the same belief system that Adam salam had, that Nuh salam had, that Isa salam had, that Musa salam had, that Ibrahim salam had, that all of the Anbiya had. So it's consistent. So this concept of believing in the angels, believing in the last day, believing in Qadr, all of these things, they are consistent over time and nothing is abrogated. So that is why if you find something in a previous text and it relates to Aqidah and it is in conflict with something that we find in the Qur'an, 
as a Muslim, you can't say, oh, it must be abrogated. That if you look at the story of Adam salam in Genesis, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgot where Adam salam was, right? Now obviously this within of itself is disbelief. Someone looks in the Quran, وَمَا كَانَ رَبُّكَ نَسِيَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never forgets, oh, this ruling, this verse might have been abrogated, that's why it's different. No, the Bible is actually changed, that's why it is different. In terms of Aqidah, there is no abrogation whatsoever. Number four, all disputes return back to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. All disputes return back to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah An-Nisa, verse uh, 59. Um, that if you ever differ in anything, then return it back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. How does this come into play? This will come into play when someone will say, you know what, let us look at what so-and-so says on this discussion. Let us look at maybe what, you know, another belief system says about, you know, such and such situation. In these times or in these challenges, it is imperative to always return back to what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala say and the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam say. So in times of any dispute, you always go back to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that the criterion between haqq and batil, the criterion between truth and falsehood, is knowing what the Qur'an and Sunnah say. And whoever sides with the Qur'an and the Sunnah will be saved and will be correct. And whoever opposes the Qur'an and the Sunnah will lead to his own destruction. So anytime there's a dispute, then you always return it back to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Now, I just want to briefly talk about the Islamic concept of debate. You know, when you're having debate in Islam, how do you formulate an argument in, you know, based upon the teachings of the Qur'an and the Sunnah basically? So the first thing you want to look at is, if someone is going to make a claim, then they have to substantiate that claim. So for example, you're having a discussion with someone, someone says that, you know what, Islam says that we believe in angels, okay? Now, the first thing you're going to say is, you've made a claim, now you have to substantiate that claim. This is an Islamic principle, whoever makes the claim, the burden of proof is upon them. So that's principle number one, that whoever makes the claim, they have to substantiate that claim. Principle number two in discussion and in debate is that if you're going to substantiate that claim, make sure the substance that you're bringing is actually authentic, is actually authentic. So there's no point bringing a weak narration or a weak hadith to a discussion because that weak narration is not going to benefit the discussion at all because we can't even accept it in our discussion. So if you're going to bring substance, you're going to bring your proof for your argument, then your argument actually needs to be authentic as well. Number three, the third element and principle of discussion and debate is relevance. So now you've made a claim, you've brought the substance or the proof, now you need to make sure that the proof that you're bringing is actually relevant to the discussion. If the proof is not relevant to the discussion, there's no point in mentioning whatsoever, right? And this is what you'll find that a lot of the times certain proofs are very, very far-fetched. And you're like literally grabbing at straws to prove your point. And this is like one of the fundamental components of Ahlul Sunnah is that Ahlul Sunnah will look at the Qur'an and the Sunnah and then build their argument. Whereas the people of innovation, they will build their arguments and then look at the Qur'an and the Sunnah. This is a key distinction that you'll find. So if you ever find an individual that has an argument and then says, okay, you know what, now let me go and find the proof for it. This is not the way, you know, building and formulating an argument of Ahlul Sunnah works. But rather we look at the Qur'an and the Sunnah first and then we build our argument based upon that, not the other way around. 
So that's just a brief introduction in terms of how to formulate an argument and you know, have a discussion that these are the principles that needed to be abided by in times of differing. Right? And if a person is not willing to abide by this, then there's not going to be any structure in that discussion or debate. Principle number five is that there's no contradiction between the texts. There's no contradiction between the texts. Meaning the Qur'an with the Qur'an, you'll never find a verse, that, a verse of the Qur'an that contradicts the Qur'an. Nor will you find a hadith that contradicts the hadith. Nor will you find a hadith that contradicts the sunnah. Right? Those are the, the, the three scenarios that you'll have. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He clearly tells us in Surah An-Nisa that had, أَفَلَا يَتَدَبَّرُونَ الْقُرْآنَ Will they not reflect upon the Qur'an? Had this Qur'an been from other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, لَوَجَدُوا فِيهِ اِخْتِلَافٍ كَثِيرًا They would have found much discrepancy in this. So when it comes to texts, all of it is revelation and all of it comes from one source. And if it's all coming from one source, then there can never be any tanaquth. There can never be any contradiction between the texts. So from the beliefs of Ahlul Sunnah, when it comes to the text, is that we will find ways to understand the text. Sometimes it will be something that is general and specific. Sometimes it will be something that is abrogated. Sometimes it is something that will have a particular context to it, right? But never will there be any contradiction. Never will there be any contradiction. Number six, there will never be a contradiction between the intellect and revelation. There will never be a contradiction between intellect and revelation. And subhanAllah, this is something you know you find really profound about the scholars of the past, is their you know, courage and confidence in this principle. Yet you find someone like Ibn Khuzayma rahimahullah, you know, famous scholar of hadith, famous scholar of aqidah as well. He said, anyone that finds a contradiction in the Quran and the Sunnah, let him bring it to me so that I can solve it for him. Let him bring it to me so that I can solve it for him. And this is a conviction. In our day and age, this is the type of conviction that we need to have. That you know, as Muslims, we're proud of what the Qur'an taught us. We're proud of what the Prophet ﷺ brought to us. And this is amazing that even you find this from the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, that you know, some of the, 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 the polytheists, they were mocking Salman radiallahu anhu. And he said, look, your Prophet has even taught you how to go to the bathroom. Right? In this day and age, you know, someone mocks you like that. You, you know, Islam is so meticulous and diligent that it even teaches you how to go to the bathroom. You'd be like, yeah, but you know, it's not really how you understand it. You know? I can do this if I want, I don't have to do it. You get discouraged, you feel like ashamed you know, that, uh, that our deen teaches us this. But Salman radiallahu an, he completely flips it on them. He's again, not only did he teach me how to go to the bathroom, but he taught me not to face the Qibla, he taught me to wash myself, and he taught me to look after myself. He felt proud, he felt confident. And this is the type of confidence we want to have in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, that we're proud of you know, what we represent. So when it comes to the contradiction between the intellect and the text, there's never going to be a contradiction, right? Why? Because again, the one that created the intellect and the one that revealed the text is the same source. So in a situation where a person seems to find a contradiction, what is usually going on? Either the text that is being used is not authentic, which is a possibility, or number two, it's taken out of context. It's taken out of context, meaning that there might be abrogation, there might be general and specific, you know, there might be a specific reason behind it, but there will never be any contradiction behind it. Number seven, the apparent meaning of the text is the desired meaning of the text. The apparent meaning of the text is the desired meaning of the text. 
Who wants to give this a shot? What does this mean? The apparent meaning of the text is the desired meaning of the text. It's not some sort of deeper hidden meaning that only one person can interpret, right? And the rest of the people don't. Will not understand. Fantastic. That is exactly what we're referring to. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Yusuf, He gives us a, a, a very clear statement, right? That we have revealed to you an Arabic Quran. Does anyone know what it benefits over here? La'alla has two main reasons why it is used. Who knows why is la'alla used? There are two main reasons why la'alla is used. Go ahead. Uh, some people, uh, in order that you may under, uh, understand the comprehension. That's the translation of it. Uh, yes, I know. I, I'm about to continue. Um, because some people might uh, understand it uh, differently or think of it as, you know, they're, they... <laughs> they think there might be a deeper meaning and then they pull the entire meaning out of a proportion? No? Possibly? Yes? Wallahu ta'ala I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, la'allah, it's used in the Quran for two main reasons. Either Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that it is hopeful that you will get the following thing, right? La'allakum turhamun. In hopes that you may, you know, have, be, may have mercy upon you, right? Or it can also be that this is the reasoning for attaining the following thing. So one is something that you might get it, you might not, but it's hopeful. And then number two, it is the actual reasoning that you may get it. So we have revealed a Quran to you in Arabic so that you may reflect and ponder over it. So the reason why he revealed it in Arabic is so that you may ponder and understand it and reflect upon it. You cannot ponder and reflect something that you do not understand. And that is why when it comes to language, the general principle in language is that you speak in the language or the level of the person that you are addressing, right? You speak at the level and the language of the person that you are addressing and not at your own understanding. So for example, I can come into a room and I will tell Danish, you know what, stand up. You don't have to do it. I tell Danish, stand up. And then Danish, he doesn't stand up. And I'm like, Danish, why aren't you standing up? And he's like, oh, because I understood stand up to mean sit down, right? There has to be consistency in language, right? And that is what the people understand is the, under, is, is the desired meaning of it. No one can say, you know, when someone says, leave the masjid, oh, I thought you meant that I should go take a nap right now, right? It doesn't work like that. There's consistency in language. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us, He revealed the Qur'an in Arabic, so that everyone can understand it. There would be no discrepancies, there would be no misunderstandings. And that is why the apparent meaning of something is the desired meaning of it. So whatever the apparent meaning is, then that is what the Sharia intended. And this comes particularly, you know, when we're going to be talking about the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when we talk about Allah's hearing and Allah's sight, some of the groups, they said, you know what? The hand of Allah means His favor or His power. Ahlul Sunnah, we say no, the desired meaning or the apparent meaning of hand is a hand. It's not like our hand, it's a hand that's befitting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's majesty. But hand means hand, right? And until you have a qarina, that you have an evidence to indicate that something is not understood at the, on the apparent, then that meaning stays on the apparent. So that is the principle number seven. Principle number eight, and it's the last principle that we'll be taking for today. And that is, the best understanding of this deen was the understanding of the Sahaba radiallahu anh. 
the best understanding of this deen was the understanding of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. We already gave you the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he says that if you were to believe like the Sahaba believes, then you would be guided. I'll give you a second verse, Surah Tawbah, verse one, number 100, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, As-sabiquna al-awwalun min al-muhajirina wal-ansar wal-ladheena tabaoohum bi-ihsan radiyallahu anhum wa radu'an. The operative sentence over here, and those people that follow the, the, the muhajirun and ansar in righteousness, then Allah will be pleased with them, and they are pleased with Allah. So meaning that if you were to follow the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum in righteousness, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will be pleased with you, and you will be pleased with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, these eight principles that we've mentioned over here, these are the defining principles of Ahlul Sunnah versus the people of innovation. You'll find that anytime a person has an innovation in them, it will be because they have distorted one of these principles. It will be because they have distorted one of these principles. What's important to understand over here, can a person have a mistake and still be from Ahlul Sunnah? And the answer to that is twofold. It depends on the type of mistake. If the mistake is they had the correct principles, but their ijtihad was wrong, their, 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 you know, their reasoning was wrong, then yes, they're, they're still from Ahl Sunnah. The, 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 the crux is what are the principles that they're using, or what they call Masadir al-Talaqi. You know, what are the principles that they're using to form their argument and their understanding. As long as the principles are sound, then the conclusion, you know, we're willing to pardon. However, if a person has incorrect principles, yet still reaches the same conclusion, then still we would still consider that person a person of innovation. We would still consider that person a person of innovation. So for example, let's go back to when we were talking about why some of the groups rejected the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We said they rejected the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they said attributes can only exist on bodies and bodies by definition have to be created and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not created so therefore He doesn't have attributes. So is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created? They will say no. From Ahl Sunnah's perspective, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created? The answer is no. But when we say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not created, we believe that Allah is not created because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls Himself Al-Awwal, the first, the one that has nothing before Him, right? When they say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not created, it's because they've taken this long journey to get there through this philosophical argument. So even though the conclusion is the same, the way we got to that conclusion is completely different. One is the way of Ahlul Sunnah, and one is the way of Ahlul Bid'ah. One is the way of Ahlul Bid'ah. Are we clear? Anyone confused about anything? Anything need to be repeated? Go ahead. Small side point. Yeah. You said the apparent meaning of the text is the desired of the meaning of the text. Yes. I uh, want to understand how it is different from uh, literal meaning. Literal. Okay, so literal, it's exactly what the, 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 the text says, right? The apparent meaning is that what you're meant to understand from this. So to give you an example of this, um, the literal meaning versus the apparent meaning. Okay, fantastic. That's a very good example. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, actually, I don't know if that's a good example or not. It's not, it's not physical rope. Yeah, it's, yeah, but this is like something else. It's, it's, it's a linguistic tool. I don't want to talk about linguistic tools right now. What I do want to talk about is, you know, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when He's talking about the ship, uh, He says, uh, that, you know, the, the ship is with our eyes. 
Allah's eyes are not with the ship, right? That, that's the literal meaning. The apparent meaning is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees everything, right? That is the apparent meaning of the text. Okay. If you understand the difference, literal meaning is Allah's eyes are physically there. The apparent meaning is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala watches and, and knows and sees everything. So that would be like an example of literal versus apparent. And then how can we say this is, what's the proof of this again you said? So it's just simple, they use a verse from Surah, Surah Yusuf. Uh, so la'alla is lit-ta'lil That the reason why Allah revealed it in Arabic Is so that you can understand it And if something is not on the apparent meaning You wouldn't be able to understand it Can we also say if it was not apparent meaning Then everyone can have their own interpretation That, that was a problem that, That's al-qawl That's you know, what's necessitated by their opinion So if we say that there's no consistency in language Or that the Sahaba didn't understand What the Prophet said or Allah said Then there would be no consistency in language And then literally our whole deen would collapse yeah, go ahead. So in Usul al-Fiqh, they have something called Dalalat al-Alfaz. And this is like how to understand wordings. Now, I'm not going to go into the, the detailed version of it, but the general ruling when it comes to words uh, in the Quran and the Sunnah is that the first definition that is applied to something is the Sharia definition. So if the Sharia is given a definition for something, then that is the definition that is applied. If the Sharia hasn't given a just definition, then it is a... a, a no, linguistics is third. It is the, the Urfi definition, whatever the cultural norm is. And if there's no cultural norm definition, then it goes back to the linguistic definition. So over here, you know, the, 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 the topic of Salah, Allah's Messenger وسلم, clearly defined for us what is Salah. Right? It is something that begins with the Takbir and ends with the Taslim. So therefore it's been defined for us and that is why we use that definition rather than the definition of the previous nations or, you know, the linguistic definition at that time. Wallahu alam. Khair. Yeah. Some people have interpreted the speed of light from the Quran, like from Surah as there is a I would say angels travel a thousand years, angels are made of light and right. from that they calculate the speed of light. Right. Okay Wallahu ta'ala <laughs> I have never heard that before. But one thing I, I would say is that Quran authenticates science. Science does not authenticate the Quran. So in this sort of situation you know, I would be very, I would tread very, very carefully in, in, in proceeding with, with such things. Wallahu alam. Okay, let me just finish with the second verse, because the second verse is pretty much just repeating the first verse. وَدِّنْ بِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ وَالسُنِنِ اللَّتِي أَتَتْ عَنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ تَنْجُوا وَتَرْبَحُوا so practice your religion based upon the book of Allah and the sunnah which came from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, so that you will be saved and earn reward. دِنْ بِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ Din over here is an imperative. It's meaning act in accordance to the teachings of the Quran and Sunnah. The author over here mentions this specifically because when it comes to Aqidah, there's no such thing as theoretical Aqidah. There's no such thing as theoretical Aqidah. Aqidah is very, very practical. And this is what we need to drive home. That later on when we're talking about the hands of Allah, when we're talking about seeing Allah, when we're talking about the descent of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of this has a practical relevance in our lives. And I want to draw this home by reflecting upon you know, the articles of faith. So when we talk about the Day of Judgment, what is the practical implication that belief in the Day of Judgment has? The practical implication is that I should do as much good as I can because on that day I will be rewarded. I should stay away from oppression because I will be questioned about the oppression that I do. That is practical implication. Belief in the angels, right? Belief in the angels, there is nothing that is hidden from Allah Allah sees everything and the angels are recording each and every single thing that I do. So just like I'm a good Muslim in public, I should be a good Muslim in private as well. Practical application. Belief in the books. 
The books were sent down as a guide. If I truly call myself guided, I should see how often I refer to the books. Belief in the messengers. Messengers were sent as an example. And if I truly am a, a good person, I should be following the example of the people uh, that Allah called messengers, right? So all of these practical tidbits that are in Aqidah, they're not theoretical. They need to be implemented and have an impact in our lives. And that is why we're studying Aqidah, not for the sake of argumentation, not for the state, for the, for the for, for, for theoreticals, but rather for the sake of practically implementing it. And that is what, you know, the Qur'an is for. And from the Sunnah that came from the Messenger of Allah The term Sunnah, it comes from a pathway. When something is a path, this is what the term Sunnah actually means. When we talk about Sunnah in Islam, it will have four definitions. It will have four definitions. Definition number one. And this is when the scholars of Aqidah are talking about it. The term Sunnah means the correct Aqidah. The term Sunnah means the correct Aqidah. So Imam Ahmad wrote a book called Usul As-Sunnah. His son wrote a book called As-Sunnah. Now these books aren't books of fiqh, they're books of Aqidah. They're called As-Sunnah because it is the correct path, the correct Aqidah that the Messenger of Allah came with. Definition number two, the term sunnah according to the scholars of hadith. According to the scholars of hadith, it encompasses five things. It encompasses five things. Number one, the things the Prophet said. Number two, the things the Prophet did. Number three, the things the Prophet approved of. Number four, the way the Prophet conducted himself. And number five, the appearance of the Prophet The appearance of the Prophet Okay, that's scholars of hadith. Now we move on to scholars of usul al-fiqh. Scholars of usul al-fiqh, they said the first three from the scholars of hadith. The scholars of usul al-fiqh, they said the actions of the Prophet the statements of the Prophet and the things the Prophet accepted. Okay? We move on to the last one, the scholars of fiqh. When the scholars of fiqh talk about sunnah, they're referring to those things that are legislated, but are not mandatory. Those things that are, not those things that are legislated, but are not mandatory. Meaning that if you were to do it, you are rewarded. But if you were not to do it, you are not punished. You are not punished. There is a fifth one that is used, and that is... I guess used by both scholars of usul al-fiqh and by scholars of aqidah. And that is when they will use uh, sunnah as an antonym for bid'ah. Sunnah as an antonym for bid'ah. So bid'ah is something which is innovated, then sunnah is that which is legislated, right? So that is a fifth definition that is used. Now here's something to, to test your understanding of these definitions. What is the difference, or sorry, why did the scholars of usul al-fiqh and the scholars of hadith have a difference in their understanding of sunnah. Why did the scholars of usul al-fiqh and the scholars of hadith have a difference in their understanding of sunnah? Go ahead, Munib. Maybe the scholars of hadith wanted to collect everything of the Prophet related to him. So they made it very general, basically, you would say. As opposed to? Usul fiqh, um, I don't know. I don't know. You know the answer, you're there. 
Their hadith scholars are trying to collect everything. Oh, yeah. They're trying to preserve the life of the Prophet What are the usul of fiqh scholars trying to protect? The, 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 of the legal rulings. Yeah. The legal rulings. So usul of fiqh scholars, they're looking for legal rulings. Legal rulings will not be derived from the description or from the etiquettes of the Messenger of Allah Right? They're described from the statements, actions, and approvals of the Messenger of Allah Fantastic. Then let us conclude. He goes on to say, Atat an Rasulillahi tanju wa tarbahu. That if you were to stick to the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, not only will you be saved, but you will also earn a great amount of reward. Um, Imam Malik rahimahullah, he had a, a very beautiful statement. He said that the sunnah is like Noah's Ark. Whoever boards it is saved, and whoever you know, abandons it is destroyed. The sunnah is like Noah's Ark. Whoever boards it is saved, whoever abandons it is destroyed. And literally, you know, that, that, that couldn't be closer to the truth, subhanAllah. That whoever follows the Messenger of Allah in all aspects of his life, not only will he be a great individual in this dunya, but in terms of the akhirah, you know, it's the best example that you can follow, subhanAllah. So it is the ultimate definition of success. And that is why we're commanded to follow the Messenger of Allah It's a part of our iman, it is a part of our love of Allah. قُلِنْ كُنْتُمْ تُحِبُّونَ اللَّهِ فَاتَّبِعُونِي that if you truly love Allah, then follow the Messenger of Allah Tarbahu, in terms of, you know, this is more in terms of, you say, Rabaha shay, that if he got a profit from something, right? Business transaction, you get a profit, this is known as Ribh. And what this is referring to, is that if you want to maximize your rewards with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then your rewards will be maximized when you follow the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah It is also implied over here, that if your actions are not in accordance to the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, there is no reward for you. In fact, you may even be sinful. So if your actions are in opposition to the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, there is no reward for you. And in fact, you may actually be sinful. You may actually be sinful. Now, alhamdulillah, we've covered you know, quite a, a bit of material tonight. And I know it's a very heavy class. The next class is going to be just as heavy because we're going to be talking about principles of how to understand the sifat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What are principles that we have to understand the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As I mentioned, revise these points, you know, go back and, and watch the video again, revise your notes, understand this. This is an advanced taqidah class. You know, it's not going to be like our tafsir and our hadith class where you can get by without revising, right? You need to revise and understand because if you don't have a solid foundation, Everything else we take for the next, you know, eight halaqas, it's not going to be worth much. It's not going to be worth much. I will take three questions, and then we have Sheikh Hatim here is going to making uh, to make an announcement. Bismillahi ta'ala. So Danish, go ahead. Sheikh, I got a couple of questions in. Go ahead. Stuff you said I, I didn't record. No problem. So you mentioned the six sources of epistemology, right? Yes. Quran, Sunnah, uh, Ijma, Reason. Yeah. What was the fifth one? Fitrah. Fitrah, you said the sixth one. The sixth one was, sen was our senses. senses. Yes. And the second was um, the fifth, scholars of fifth. Yes. Why did they take the, uh, they didn't report the... The term sunnah? Yeah. So sunnah for them when they talk about sunnah is that which is legislated but not mandatory. And we give a, a more specific definition that if you were to do it, you are rewarded. But if you were to leave it, you're not punished. Wallahu alam. Go ahead. In the beginning, you mentioned the difference between taqlid and ittiba'ah. Yeah. And you said taqlid basically is following without understanding and knowing. Yes. What is, is what is being unfollowed, basically. Right. So, um, is it wrong to say that we do taqlid of the Prophet Because Imam Malik's famous statement said, everyone is 
taken from and rejected except this uh, whatever you pointed to. Right. So over here it needs to be understood properly that we will follow the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam whether we understand it or not. Right? Whatever he said, whatever he commanded, we will follow it without questioning it. But that does not mean we don't have the right to understand why that is being said. So you understand the difference? So taqlid is you don't question, nor do you try to understand. Ittiba' is you don't question, but you try your best to understand. And that is what our deen is about. That when we understand why we actually do things, this actually increases our iman. And that's like why one of the nobler sciences that we can study is maqasid the sharia. What is the sharia actually intending behind the laws behind it? Right? Wallahu alam. Abdul Wasya. Yes. Okay, so with the term that's used in Arabic is aql, and this is like the ability to reason, the ability to deduce. Okay, whereas senses is what you see, what you touch, what you feel, what you taste. So those are sources of knowledge that you have. Make sense? Well, yeah, no problem, inshallah. Anything else? Go ahead. So, for example, the things that the Prophet ﷺ did is he used to pray two rak'ahs before Salat al-Fajr. That's what the Prophet ﷺ did. In terms of the way the Prophet ﷺ conducted himself, then the Prophet ﷺ uh, encouraged to have patience. So from a legal side, we will look at the two rak'ahs that the Prophet ﷺ prayed, but we won't necessarily look at the concept of patience, right? So the scholars of, you know, Sirah, they'll mention things like patience and you know, uh, generosity and things like that. But when we're talking about, you know, Islamic rulings, we're not going to look at patience and, and generosity and things like that. We will look at the Prophet ﷺ prayed two rak'ahs, when did he pray them, why did he pray them, and so on and so forth. Wallahu alam. Go ahead. Uh, one of the factors that differentiate between Ahl Sunnah and non Sunnah, yes. as you said, following the Quran, yes. and following the Sunnah of Rasulullah, and the Salaf yes. that came after us. One of the difficulties we are facing these days that a lot of people they are rejecting the Salaf. Right. I don't know how to do this because they are saying they are human beings like us. I know. They give their understanding and we have another understanding. I know. And Sahih, this is yeah. like, I understand completely where you're coming from. Yes. Like this is not even just a problem with our times. If you look at the development of Aqidah over time, the, the people of the, the past, they used to say, Tariqatu salaf aslam wa tariqatuna a'lam wa ahkam. This is what they used to say, subhanAllah. This is like in the 4th and 5th century. That they say that if you want to take the safer approach to Aqidah, you follow the Salaf. But if you want the more knowledgeable path and the, the path that ha makes more sense, then you should follow our path. But this is in, in direct opposition to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Messenger of Allah said. Khairul quruni qarni, Right? And Allah said, you know, if you believe like the Sahaba believed, then you will be guided. Allah is pleased with those that followed al-Muhajirun wal-Ansar. Like all these proofs, you know, they, it couldn't be, be, be clear, subhanAllah. As clear as the sun is, these proofs are just as clear. That Allah's pleasure is in the, in the following of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum for sure. Wallahu alam. Khair, I don't want to conclude too long. I want to stop at 9 o'clock, so we'll conclude with that. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk.